Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Let's start our conversation in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is such an honor to get to worship you this morning and to reflect on your wondrous mercy and grace and your love. Lord, may you open up our minds and our hearts to hear what you could be saying to us this morning. And may you give us feet to put it into practice and action so you may be glorified. This is worthy of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. We are continuing on in our series this morning, asking for a friend, and our questions revolve around miracles. And I'm a bit ambitious this morning. I'm going to try to tackle two questions, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Um, And the first question has to do with coherency which is something along the lines of, and these questions take a kind of a variety of forms, Um, but the first question is kind of like, if God never changes, why do we not see miracles today? And kind of there's this feeling of some people of discontinuity. We read the Gospels and we seem to see on display a Jesus who's active and present and doing a lot of miracles And there are some that sit back and go, well, that doesn't seem to reflect the life that I experience. I have three little ones, and I sometimes call this effect the the Disney magic effect, uh, where it's like we have this expectation of these wowed and mysterious outpouring of things, almost something that we would encounter with the Disney Channel or Disney movies, and go like, the gospel seemed to set us up in a certain way for that expectation. Why doesn't it deliver. Um, And so some people ask this sort of question in an attempt to figure out what feels like discrepancies uh, between what they read in the Gospels and what they experience in the day-to-day. By that I mean they believe in what the Gospel says, and they're trying to understand and work out why what they are experiencing doesn't seem to overlap with what they read. Uh, The second type of people asking this question uh, are more trying to lean into what they believe are discrepancies between the presentation of the Gospels and today to demonstrate really that the Christian God cannot exist. The logic for them works out like this. Since God does not perform miracles today, the God of the Bible must not be real. Because if, both, if God is both loving and all-powerful, then surely we would see the miraculous hand of God in movement in bigger ways than what we see today. I told you I was being ambitious this morning, right? So that's one question. Here's the second question. And it comes from more of an emotional point of view. And it typically sounds something like this. If God doesn't provide the miracle that I asked for, does that mean God doesn't love me enough? And the logic of this question works out 
like this. I believe God is both loving and all-powerful. But because God didn't give me what I asked for, perhaps there's something wrong with me. Perhaps there's an issue with me. Maybe I didn't ask correctly. Maybe I didn't have enough faith. Maybe I'm unlovable. And to answer those questions, to get at the answer of those questions, which are loaded with presuppositions, by the way. These questions are loaded with presuppositions that I think we have to go back and ask two more primary basic questions. Definitions matter. Frameworks matter. So I think we have to ask a couple of framework questions to help guide our conversation. And those questions are this. What is a miracle? How how would we define it? What is a miracle? Because that can help in terms of leaning into our conversation. And then the second one is, and why does God perform them? So the why behind the miracle. Both of these questions are important. What is a miracle? Why does God perform them? And to answer those two questions, we're going to turn to Scripture. And we're going to look at three different miracles that Jesus performed. The first is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. The second, the healing of a man with leprosy. And the last one, the turning of water into wine. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4, 38 to 44 in your Bibles or your Bible app. And I'm going to invite you to also just put your finger there and also look at Luke 5, 12 to 16. Two of the miracles are very close to one another. Um, and we'll, we'll work in those in order. In the Gospels, a lot of purpose, vision, and theology is found within what I would call the transitional verses that link the various stories together. And that's because in those verses, the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are weaving stories of Jesus together to communicate to a particular people in a particular place the themes of the gospel, the good news of the gospel message. And they work these stories and interweave kind of what their big narrative is through the transitional verses. Ironically, these are the types of verses that as readers of the Bible, we tend to speed read through or just skip over altogether to get to the next story. Uh, the problem with that is at the, on the one hand, it does let us get to the good part faster and it does help us remember the story. Unfortunately, what it also does is it gives us kind of rather incomplete or even sometimes weak theology because the transition verses matter. So pay attention to the transitional material at the end of these miracle stories. I'll read for us Luke 4, 38 to 44. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many, shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place, and the people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues 
of Judea. If you have your Bible open, don't close it. Just put your finger over there in chapter 5, and we'll get back. This passage gives us enough information to answer one of our first basic questions, which is what is a miracle? A miracle is the unnatural change in the physical, emotional, or spiritual condition of a person or a thing. I'll say that again because it's a lot of information to try to take in at one time. A miracle is the unnatural change in the physical, emotional, or spiritual condition of a person or a thing. In the story we just read in Luke 4, the person or thing is Peter's mother-in-law. And we're not sure what the extent of her sickness was, um, but we get the sense that she was either on her deathbed and dying, or she had a sickness that would take a long time to recover from. And Jesus' presence and his healing touch altered the course of time for her so that she was well instantly, either saved from death or saved from longer-term suffering. So it's a miraculous, a miracle is an unnatural change. It's an expedited process, so to speak, an alteration. Um, let's turn in our Bibles quickly to Luke 5, 12 to 16. So I hope you, you kept your finger in place there. We're going to read another story. And again, pay attention to the transitional material. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing, as is a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In the first story, in some of this transitional material we find, it says, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. At daybreak, Jesus went to a solitary place. Now, it's very likely, and we get later, right, that the people want to convince Jesus into staying with them. Stay with us, Jesus. And we get this sense that the reason why the people wanted Jesus to stay was so that Jesus would work out more miracles for them. Perhaps Jesus made it through the whole line of people that were there that day. Well, all of those people returned to their families and explained the extraordinary things that happened. And so presumably, and I think rather strongly, we can presume that these people had expectations on Jesus to do more the next day, to do more of the same thing. But he left. And he let them know that he had to go. And in the second miracle that we read, it said at the end, crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In both of these stories, both of these miracle stories, there's a tension that rises to the surface that's brought up by this transitional material. Jesus would perform many miracles in a particular place. So more and more and more people would come, but eventually Jesus would leave to solitary places. 
And here's the tension. That means that before every person in a particular town was healed, Jesus would leave. He would move on. Can you imagine being one of the people who missed Jesus? You just didn't hear that he was in town fast enough. The news just hadn't gotten to you. Or that you just couldn't get there in time. Maybe you were too far away and you didn't know if he was coming back anytime soon. And although Jesus performed a lot of miracles that we get revealed to us in Scripture, we read about them constantly, it doesn't seem as though he found them to be his primary purpose, right? We get that from some of the transitional materials. But I must go forward and proclaim the kingdom of God to the other towns and to the other synagogues. And that's what he called his primary purpose. And if you can't tell by now, after all of the different months of time that we've spent together, I'm a question-oriented thinker. So when I find this tension in these transitional verses and realizing that Jesus' primary purpose wasn't to perform miracles makes me wonder, it makes me ask this question, why did Jesus perform miracles at all? Why did that happen? To answer that question, we must go to the book of John in John chapter 2, 1 to 12. I'm not going to read the full story for us, but this is the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And if you remember the story, Jesus and his disciples were at a wedding, which embarrassingly ran out of wine. This was not good for the hosting family. They should have prepared well in advance. Jesus' mother was also there. And so she turns to him, expecting him to do something about the problem. Now, I want to kind of touch on a side note here. In John, this is Jesus' first public miracle. And he even tells his mom, woman, this is not my time. My time has not yet come. And Mary looks at him with expectation. It makes me wonder what it was like raising Jesus. Has he done the water to wine trick before? What other things has Jesus been up to as a child to make Mary go, you can fix this, Jesus? And then I just go, poor Mary. I'm sure it was wonderful in this raising experience. I'm sure there was a lot of pressure raising, you know, the Son of God. As if that wouldn't be hard. Anyway, Jesus has ceremonious jars that are used for cleansing, filled to the brim to make more wine. It turns out to be the best wine of the banquet which brings honor to this family, which I think satisfies Mary's concern. Don't let this family leave Jesus being dishonored in this big village celebration. Bring honor to them, and he does. And as John concludes the story, he says this in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. Here, John gives us insight into why Jesus performed miracles in the first place. It's because they're signs through which he revealed his glory. In other words, miracles are displays of God's glory, not demonstrations of God's love. I'm going to say that again. It's really important. Miracles are displays of God's glory, not demonstrations of God's love. 
A favorite scholar of mine talked about miracles this way. A miracle is an observed event that triggers awareness of God's presence and power. If we're talking about Jesus's purpose, why is he doing miracles? Why do miracles happen today? And why are they kind of this pop-up style thing that we just can't wrap our minds around and we don't understand who gets what and why that we can start to transition our thinking some into realizing that the purpose of miracles in John, as well as today, in my opinion, is to trigger awareness of God's presence and power. It confirms for us as we witness either in our personal lives or in the life of someone else that these stories compiled in the gospel about God's character, his nature, his love, all of these things are true because now we can reach out and touch it. Now we can reach out and touch it. We've seen it. We know it's true. They're displays of power. What that means for us is that if we don't receive the miracle that we've been praying for for some reason, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us enough to answer our prayer. It absolutely does not mean this. It also doesn't mean that God loves someone else more if they have received the miracle that they have been praying about. Please hear this. If you hear nothing else, hear this this morning. God could never love you more than what he does right now in this moment. He cannot possibly love you more. How do I know? I know because he sent his one and only son to die for you. You don't do that unless if you deeply, profoundly, intimately love the people you're sending him for, and he sent him for you. You are beloved. That's just who you are. So now that we've kind of addressed the more emotional-based miracle question was, is this about my love? And the answer is no, it's not. It's about God's power. Let's turn to the more kind of logical, coherence-based question. Why don't we see miracles today? To answer that question, we're going to participate in something together. A bit of action research, if you will. If you wear glasses or contacts, my wife fits in that boat, and I have to tell you, I have her permission to share this, and I shared this last service when she was here. My wife is blind as a bat. I've watched her function with her, her glasses or contacts in the morning, and it is sad and funny. I'm like, wow, you can't see anything. You just can't see. So she needs glasses or contacts. She's very dependent. If you wear glasses or contacts, if you wear a hearing aid to help you hear, if you have had any type of heart surgery, routine or otherwise, if you've had any type of knee replacement surgery or hip replacement or reconstructive surgery, Please raise your hand. Please raise your hand. Now, please keep your hand up for a minute. Everyone look to your left and right. That is a lot of hands. Here is evidence of blind receiving their sight, deaf receiving their hearing, lame walking, and people being raised from the dead. It's evidence. It's happened in this room. 80% of you have had it happen to you. 
The other 20% of us who have seen you respond to this. I actually think personally that we see miracles so often that we're not able to recognize them as miracles. We presume that they should just happen. If you were in a third world country today and you raised your hand, I can almost guarantee you that you would either not be here or your day-to-day operation would be drastically different than it is today. When I was talking to my wife about this sermon, she was like, oh my goodness, without contacts and without someone's mercy, I would be a beggar on the street. I can't see. And she said, I've never processed or thought through that God would literally return to me my sight. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Friends, modern medicine is a miracle. There's no escaping and or denying that. Through our medical community, God has poured out healing knowledge to create entire systems and frameworks capable of regularly producing miracles. So much so that we just go, oh, because somebody can explain it, it doesn't exist. Not true. I believe the medical community, including mental health specialists, are profound gifts from God. And these people are walking out the call that God has placed on their life. Paul talks about this call in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And he says this, And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Now, I'm kind of a Greek nerd. I'm not going to bore you with the Greek lecture here, but those nouns, we could also read them in this way. Teachers, miracle workers, healers, helpers, guiders. They're people types. And God has poured out this creative and holy imagination onto these people to do the skill set that they have. If you've ever watched a quality teacher and you watch them engage people, they have a gift of unlocking the world of knowledge to people. They just do. So do our miracle workers and healers, our medical community. They have developed these processes through the truth of God revealed to them in such a way that God is pouring out miracles in the left and the right all over the place. They're just here. It's present. Now, we can know all of this and agree with it. But that still doesn't prevent us from feeling like miracles somehow get distributed unfairly. Right? We get this sense that if I was God, I would distribute these differently. If I could do something about it, I would do something about every one, every last one. And that's especially the case if we've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for a particular miracle to work out, and it just didn't. And we were told no, for whatever reason. And we don't understand why we were told no, we were just told no. And I think when we are in those moments of desperation and disappointment, and they are real moments of desperation, disappointment, confusion, anger, wrestling with God, that we must cling ever more firmly to the basics of the gospel. Here's what I mean. For us, the worst possible scenario that we can map in our head is death or the death of a loved one. It's our biggest fear. It's the worst thing that could happen. However, 
If the gospel is true, and there's so much evidence to support that the gospel is true, if you don't believe in it, come talk. I want to have that conversation. Then death is truly a grand unlocking. It's a grand unlocking. It's the outworking of the third greatest miracle talked to us of script, in scripture. It's the miracle of our lives truly given back to us by our loving Father in an internal, eternal embrace for all eternity. I said eternity a lot there because I meant it. Now, the first greatest miracle is the working of the gospel in the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. It's the greatest, first greatest miracle of all time. It's amazing to think that God humbled himself, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in my place, and then did the second greatest miracle of all time, didn't stay dead. That's crazy. He resurrected, which gives us hope in anticipation of the third greatest miracle, the promise of the gospel, the Christian hope. My and your resurrection. That is what we believe in as Christians. It is our foundational hope principle. As that the eternal God, the creator of all things, loved you so profoundly that he did not want to be without you, so he sent his son into this world for your sake so that you could be and live with him forever and all eternity. For those that have gone before us, they are enveloped in God's love in ways that we can only imagine and anticipate. For us still here, whenever we get there, whatever there is, I'm sure we would have been okay with it having arrived sooner. Do you know what I don't think is going to happen? I don't think we're going to get there and go, send me back. When I enter Jesus' loving arms and embrace, I'm not going to say, send me back. I'm going to go, I'm home. I'm here. This is what I was made for. Nevertheless, since we are here right now, we know that God has a purpose for us to live into. That the life we're given, we are to live out as a testimony to our Savior, enabling others to experience and know and discover the profound love that the Father has for them and what he's done for them and the eternal hope of everlasting community and fellowship with him. And we have that mission because God has given it to us. We are a people of mission. That's what the church is. This morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate the two greatest miracles of all time, the incarnation and the resurrection by taking communion. As you receive the elements this morning, receive them in great anticipation of the third promised miracle, your resurrection. Hear now the words of institution from Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As I pray, I want to invite the communion stewards to come forward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your love for us is unfathomable. It's profound. It's deep. It overwhelms our souls if we let it. We thank you for it. Lord, forgive us for those moments when we have doubted your goodness or your love, when you haven't moved like we hoped. Lord, also forgive us for perhaps those moments of jealousy when we've gone, somebody else got a miracle and I didn't and I'm mad. Help us to lean in and trust of you. Help us to remember in these big moments, Lord, that you love us and that you are still the way maker and miracle giver. That you do ordinary miracles around us all the time and you still perform the extraordinary. Lord, help us to receive all of them as displays of your power and might. And if for some reason you tell us no, which is a profound mystery to us, might we still lean in and say, we know you're good and we know your love, even though it doesn't feel good right now. We thank you for the provision of your son, the greatest outpouring of love the world has ever seen. And as we participate in these elements, we participate in the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.